turn to 1 John. 1 John 4. Uh, this month, I know this is probably not huge news to you, but this month is my birthday month. I turn 31, secret. That's, I'm 31 this month. I turned 31 on December 29th, and I started looking back on the things that happened in 1992. So if I'm 31 years old, that means I'm about as old as this classic movie, Home Alone 2. How many of y'all watched some Home Alone around the holidays? Praise God. Yes, sir. I love that movie. Uh, My kids love that movie. Um, I'm a little bit older than a very famous movie. How many of you have seen Groundhog Day? How many of you have seen Groundhog Day? That's a famous movie. I haven't watched that one in a while, but it's a good one. Um, I know this might make some of you, uh, <laughs> you know, sigh, but I'm a little bit older, or I was born a little bit after the election of Bill Clinton. Uh, so that tells you how old, or maybe how young I am. And most importantly, uh, I'm as old as the famously annoying song. How many of you are familiar with the song, What is Love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. Hathaway? No? Oh, my goodness. Night of the Rocks. Oh, so it's made famous by that movie. That's right. Some of you just, you know, you need to be cultured. No more. That beat right there. Anyway. It, there's nothing wrong with the song. It's not immoral or anything, which is, you know, um, you can't say that about those songs today. That song came out in 1992. It was actually made famous in 1993 when some other radio stations outside of Germany picked it up. Uh, but that song asked the question, of course, what is love? Uh, and the songwriter goes through other things that his partner or girlfriend or whatever did to him that certainly aren't love, right? Hurting his heart. I, I think that's a good question for us today. What is love? And I, I think the truth of the matter is, if you've been in church for a long time, you understand that the way that we use the word love in our culture, in our day, it's, it's a lot cheaper than the biblical idea of love. Would you agree with that? The way that we use love is, is totally different. I mean, I think I just said, I love Home Alone too, And that's, you're going to see that's a little bit different than how the Bible describes love. Now, I think all of us recognize that love is important in marriage. Right? I mean, if you were to marry someone you didn't love, I mean, that's the height of stupidity. To, to enter marriage without love. But here's the reality. Love is not just a prerequisite to marriage, okay? It is an essential ongoing commitment that makes marriage work, okay? And so what we're gonna study this morning is our next gospel commitment for a healthy marriage, and it's this. We will commit to nurturing love in our marriage. This is what needs to be at the core of your desire as a husband or a wife. We will commit to nurturing love in our marriage. And as I've made the case this whole series, love is not just important for marital relationships. Love is important for every relationship. And most of the passages about love are dealing with non-marital relationships in the New Testament, right? The famous chapter on love 
1 Corinthians 13, Paul's not directly talking about marriage. He's actually writing that to church people who don't love each other well enough. So what I want to talk about this morning, first of all, is the signs of a love drought. The signs of a love drought. And I want to go through this so that maybe you can identify some things in your marriage that may be showing that there is a waning, there's a lack of love, or at least just a little bit of room for improvement. And here's the first sign of a love drought. It's disunity. Disunity. Now, we're going to really spend a whole lesson on this next week, but I want to just throw this out there and let you start thinking about it. I want you to consider the fact that you probably are married to someone who's very, very different than you in a lot of ways. Now, they're probably not altogether different than you. You probably share some things. That's why you're probably married. But I want you to consider the fact that disunity often we think is caused by our differences. But isn't it amazing that the same God who made lilies also created rocks? He made very different things. And both of those things, the rocks and the lilies, reflect his glory. In fact, the Bible calls those two things out. The rocks cry out in praise to God, and the lilies show the glory of God more than the splendor of Solomon, right? But yet God chooses to bring, in the same way that he mixes his beautiful creation, God brings different people into an intimate relationship. And sometimes in marriage we think that disunity is a product of our differences, We aren't unified as a couple because of our different upbringings. We aren't unified as a couple because of our different personalities. We aren't unified because of our different preference on this particular issue. We can't come to an agreement about it. But what we're going to see more so next week is that unity is the result of when love intersects differences. That unity is not a product of sameness. Unity is a product of sanctification, okay? So you have hope if you're very different from your spouse and maybe you entered marriage thinking, I didn't even know how different we were. There is hope for unity in your marriage. Here's another product of a love drought. It's misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, okay? Think about this. When love and trust are down, misunderstandings go up. Is that true? When trust is low, love is low, misunderstandings are high. What I mean by that is when you and your spouse are struggling with true love, and we're going to talk about that at the very end, when there is a lack of love, it is self-love or a lack of love that causes you not to listen well, which is what causes misunderstandings. It's self-love. Listen now, this is probably more where it, it comes from. It's self-love that causes you not to have a hard conversation to understand, to just make a judgment instead of to have a conversation. That's self-love. That's not true love to say, well, I don't want to talk about it, right? I, I, know, I know what their intention is, right? It's self-love that keeps you from viewing your spouse's words in the best light, right? Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says, right? It's self-love that causes you to think that your opinion on a certain situation is more important 
than your spouses, right? And, and therefore not to understand where they're coming from. It's self-love that makes you value your own way than you value functional understanding between you and your mate, right? Love, here's what love wants. Love longs for you to be on the same page. Love longs for you not to be understood. Love is what drives you to understand them. So, so many of us in an argument, we want, well, I, I just wish they would understand me. No, no, no. Here's what love does. I really want to understand where they're coming from. I'm going to start there, right? I'm going to seek first to understand, then to be understood. Here's another symptom of a love drought. Separation. Now, I don't mean like the formal sense of a separated marriage. Okay, right? There's, there's people who are separated. Uh, they're not together, but they're not divorced per se. I'm not talking that way. I'm talking, you may write the word above it, distance. Distance. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? In marriage, distance. Come on. I've been there. You've been there. Distance. Separation. Here's the truth. In some marriages, a lack of love displays itself when the house turns into World War III. Right? That's a lack of love. But I think just as true, a lack of love shows up in some households not looking like World War III, but looking like the Cold War. You know what I'm talking about. Younger folk, right? The Cold War. There wasn't really any missiles fired off. It was a standoff, right? Right? Who's going to shoot first? No one was talking to each other. There were no peace treaties signed. There were no uh, tables of negotiation. It was a standoff. And I think in a, lot, in a lot of homes, a lack of love shows itself by distance and separation. You may not fight, but you are not close. And you can't pat yourself on the back for a lack of arguments if you're not close. Listen, a, a good marriage is not just an absence of fighting. That's a very low goal. Because you know what the truth of the matter is? The people you don't argue with or never clash with are people you're not really close to. It's only when you enter into a certain proximity in a relationship that it breeds arguments because you have to work through things because you're close and you're sharing the same space and, and, and living lives that are intertwined. That's what creates differences and arguments. So here's, here's a better target for your marriage. A good marriage is not just a lack of fighting. A good marriage is the presence of closeness and intimacy and oneness, okay? See, from the outside, someone can look like they have a good marriage because they're never seen arguing. But if you dig into it and there's, a, there's separation, there's distance, what they actually have is not a marriage. What they actually have is peaceful cohabitation. That's not marriage, right? What does the Bible say about, about oneness and closeness in marriage? That God's goal for your marriage is to be what? One flesh, okay? When, when, when you two are just peacefully cohabitating, but you aren't working through things, that's not one flesh. That's not God's goal for your marriage, right? Here's the next symptom. And it's funny, you know, I... I'm not smart enough to plan sermons like fitting together, but we're in seven, 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. And we're going to talk about this for just a minute this morning, but a lack of love in marriage shows itself in sexual dysfunction. 
First Corinthians 7, the first few verses are probably one of the better passages to address this subject. Think about it. If love affects everything else in our marriage, should it surprise us when a lack of love or a lack of closeness or a lack of unity affects the sexual relationship? That shouldn't surprise us, right? For some couples, um, a lack of love may be manifested by the total absence of any sexual relationship. Uh, I personally, and in uh, ministries I've been a part of, have had couples come in for counseling that it's like, yeah, we haven't been together for five years. Um, you know, you probably should have at least come and seen someone for help in your marriage, you know, maybe six months or less into this problem. Because what I've said to you many times is that, that unless there are some serious medical issues or whatever, um, that a, a lack of sexual closeness is a symptom of other problems in your marriage. See, what, what couples need in this area is they don't need what one author called Christian body part books. We don't need techniques. If you have problems in this area of marriage, it's revealing that you have problems in other areas of your marriage. Are we okay? All right, well, I mean, if you, if you watch TV Friday Night Football, you're gonna see ads that are more descriptive than this. So I think we're okay on Sunday morning to talk a little bit about what the Bible teaches, right? For some couples, it's not that they don't have any sex together. It's that they're, when they do, it's guilt-ridden, it's obligatory, um, it's not mutual, there, there's no excitement between uh, both of them to be together. They dread it because it's cold and impersonal and forced. It lacks intimacy. The wife feels like her husband's not um, having sex with her because he doesn't find her attractive and she doesn't necessarily find herself drawn to him either. Listen, I, I'll just be honest. It's a tragedy in marriages when, <clears throat> when sex has little to do with love and more to do with obligation. This is a tragedy. I, I don't think when, when the author of Hebrews says the marriage bed's undefiled, that he means, well, I mean, it's better than nothing. No, what I think he's saying is that there's a beauty there. And, and seldom is the problem simple as a lack of understanding. No, what destroys um, sexual oneness and closeness is a lack of love. Because here's the truth. Men, if you're frustrated by your wife's response to this part of the relationship, let me ask you a question. If you haven't loved her well outside of the marriage bed, what makes you think that she'll be willing to respond to you well in the marriage bed? And the shoe can go on the other foot as well. If he has been, or if she has been impatient and selfish, why would your husband be attracted to you and be drawn to you if in every other area of your life you're impatient and selfish and maybe even unkind? Listen, you could have the body of a supermodel, but if you're awful to live with, no man is attracted to that, right? Proverbs admits that. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman. Listen, if your relationship isn't made up of daily acts of love, there's little chance that your sexual life will express true love and intimacy between each other. I'd encourage you, men and women, both to reflect. And I won't be as descript as I've been in other sermons when I preach through 1 Corinthians 7 tonight, because I know there's kids and, and I, I didn't want to go through the trouble of making other arrangements and I'm going to preach a broader principle. But read the first, I don't know, eight or nine verses of 1 Corinthians 7 
and at least start there and recognize that, that sex is not something we just hold out on each other, that, that Paul's pretty clear that there are some significant things at stake when a husband or wife aren't dealing with this area of marriage. In fact, he says that you're tempting one another. You're tempting one another. So what, what I would counsel you is say, if this is, if this is way off and it's been off for a while, you need help far more than you give yourself credit. I'm serious. And I'm not saying that you need help figuring out this part, all right? I think, I think y'all figured it out. I'm just saying that if this is way off in your marriage, you've had marital problems for months and years that need to be addressed, okay? Now, I also wanna encourage you to look out for faux love, fake love. Then you say, well, Pastor, why are, you, why are you going through this? Because we're married. It's not like we're, you know, we got married for fake reasons. Well, I want to say this, number one, for our, our single folks in the room, right? Teenagers or not, um, to make sure, you know, you, God could bring someone to your life that you may not recognize this is fake love. This is not real love. And also, I recognize the reality that in, in unhealthy marriages, what can happen is a husband or a wife can can begin a, 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 a friendship with somebody and be deceived into thinking that what they have with this person is true love and what they have with their spouse is not. And so I want to help you understand that there's such thing as fake love. There's two, two real things we have to watch out for that maraud themselves and mask themselves as fake love. I love what Paul David Tripp says. He says, counterfeit love wears convincing masks. Parents, help your kids, as they get older, recognize counterfeit love. Here are two, two things that are not love. Number one, physical attraction is not the same as love, right? Now, I'll be the first to say that physical attraction is, is not unimportant, right? I don't think God says it's a good idea for you to marry someone you have absolutely zero physical attraction to. I don't think that's a good idea. But we must recognize God displays his glory in a thousand different ways, right? And, and everyone has different preferences and what they are attracted to, right? Um, and physical beauty is, is a powerful thing and it is something that God has given us in a very material and tangible world. It itself is not wrong or dangerous, okay? But listen, there is the reality that people get into serious relationships and yes, even get married because they're so enthralled with each other physically that they don't realize they don't actually have true love in their relationship. What they're attracted to is what they get out of somebody, not what they can give to them. And of course, I'll say this to those who are not married. The reality is, is that real people have imperfect bodies. Unlike what you might see on TV or Instagram. Real people gain weight. Real people grow warts. Real people get wrinkles. Real people develop horrible degenerative diseases later in life. And so a marriage and a relationship that's built on physical attraction is a marriage that will crumble. It will. Number two, emotional connection is not love. Emotional connection is important. Again, I don't think God wants you to marry someone you, you hate being around, right? I mean, that's certainly not a good idea either. It's exciting. It's fun. Someone you can relate to and talk to and feel comfortable with, right? You don't have to like, you know, figure out how to fill the awkward periods of silence. That's a good thing. 
God wants us to enjoy a relationship that's free of stress and tension as much as possible. That's what a healthy marriage should produce most of the time. And in marriage, emotional connection is important. It's very important, but it is not love. What builds emotional connection often is love. But you cannot, uh, you cannot just build a relationship on emotional connection because here's the reality. And I'll say this to our folks who are not married. Listen very, very closely. Uh, Mike and Faith, please listen very closely. I just want to give you some life advice. Sometimes what I thought as a young person was love was just simply that I enjoyed being with someone because they made me happy. That's not love. Right? If they make me happy because I enjoy their personality, that's not love. That's selfishness. So, so a relationship has to be built on something a lot deeper than that. And, and we have to recognize that love is more than just physical attraction, emotional connection. So here's the question um, Hathaway presented to us. What is love then? Right? What is love? Okay, I'm going to get you st- that song stuck in your head. Here's what the Bible teaches us about love. Look at 1 John 4, verses 10 through 11. Love is best defined by an event, right? My, my pastor always said this, and I think, I think there's a lot of truth to it, that love is not a feeling, it is an action. Now, it's not an impersonal and cold-hearted action, but it is an action verb. And the Bible says that. John, in writing to his people who are really struggling with this topic of love, says this, herein is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Well, what is, how do we know God loved us? Prove it, right? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. How does God define his own love in this verse? Through what event? The cross, the cross, and then he says, I want you to love one another. So, so you know what he's saying? Here's what your love should look like. A cross. That's love. Let me give you a definition of love, and I want, to, I want us to break it down for the next few minutes. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that is not based on their merit and does not require Reciprocation. I know it's kind of a long definition, but it it covers all the necessary parts. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that is not based on their merit and does not require reciprocation. Reciprocation means it doesn't require them to, to do something back. That's not love, right? That's conditional. So let me break this down. Love is willing. What did Jesus say in John 10? He said that my life is not taken from me. I am laying my life down. Right? Jesus was not forced to the cross. We see that in the garden. That's one of the reasons that the gospel writers put this in there is they're trying to show us that Jesus was not forcibly taken by a betrayer. No, he was, he was giving his life. Lord, this is not what I want, but nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done, right? Jesus gave his life. It was willing. Listen, it is not love when you feel forced to contribute to your marriage. Don't call that love right? Don't call it love when you only respond when your spouse gives you a guilt trip. Ain't love, right? 
So love is willing. Love is self-sacrifice, right? And that's where the cross is the best picture because the meaning of the cross is in its sacrifice. Love requires you to put skin in the game. Love calls you, men, women, to lay aside your wants, your needs, and your feelings at times. That's love, right? Jesus is a great picture of that. He was not going to the cross in any sort of self-interest, right? He laid aside his wants, his feelings, his needs at the moment. Love, men, women, after a day of work, love calls you to disregard the fact that you're tired and still serve. I love what uh, one of the guys I admire the most in marriage and in family he, he teaches our family fun night. He wrote a book on parenting, by the way. If, if you're looking for some biblical help in parenting, follow on social media, and I'd be happy to give you this book um, by, by Andrew Linder on parenting. But Andrew Linder worked on staff in Liberal for several years. He was our kids' ministry director. And he says this, that, that when he pulls in the driveway, he tries to remind himself that, that he's not done with work. He's just starting second shift. Men and women, when you get home and you're tired from work, you're starting second shift. And, and that's hard. I'll, I'll be honest. That can be hard because I come from work some days really, really tired and, and more particularly my job, mentally exhausted. And it's really easy for me to think about me, but love calls me to set that aside at times, right? It calls you to invest time and money in places where you'd rather invest in other things. This is where a lot of marital dysfunction can happen because a lot of men, they have an idea of how they should use their money and they're thinking in the mind of like a, a financial business person, not somebody who's married to a spouse who has legitimate needs and concerns. This is true for women as well, but I've most often seen it in my experience with men. Love calls you, men particularly, Though you may not see yourself as a leader, you may not be the best leader on planet earth, love calls you to lead rather than to follow. You're, you're, you're commanded by God to do that. Sorry about you. In this pulpit, that's what's gonna be preached because it's in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying leadership means, all right, I make all the decisions and I don't listen to you. That's not leadership. But leadership is someone who is the quarterback, who makes the call at the end of the day, and, and a good coach and a good quarterback reads the field and listens to feedback from the players but someone has to make the call. And so love calls you to lead um, rather than when you'd rather follow. Or ladies, it calls you to follow when you'd much rather lead. And probably sometimes when you're probably a better leader, right? Love is not based on merit. Love is not based on merit. So, so you know, I, I, we were just talking about the area of sexual dysfunction. What, I, what I've heard a lot of times in counseling settings is that, well, you know, we're not, we're not ha having sex together because, well, she did this or he did that. Well, last I checked, it's not as though God said, in every other area of your life, govern yourself by self-sacrifice and giving, but when it comes to, to sexual relationships, just be selfish and think about that they have to earn it. I don't know if that one's in the Bible. I, I quite haven't found that one yet, right? There is a giving that has to take place not based on merit, but based on willing self-sacrifice on the part of someone who is showing biblical love in every area of marriage. You know what we call love that's based on merit? Can you think of a word for it? 
I think the best word for it's manipulation. What we think is love when it's based on merit is more actually manipulation and control. So love is not based on merit and it doesn't require reciprocation, right? So, so, so what is love in a marriage is not, well, I will start when she, right? I'll give this up when she, listen, friend, this is not a negotiation between America and Russia where we're trading hostages. No, no, no. No, no, love calls you to come to the negotiation table with all your chips on the table regardless of how many they bring. That's love. Love says, you know what? I'm gonna love you in a way that honors Christ even if you're terrible at loving me back. You know, that sounds like Jesus a little bit, doesn't it? I'm trying to think of someone who's been better at loving people who haven't quite loved him back very well. I'm trying to think of someone who bore the wrath of all of humanity's sins when the majority of humanity still would much rather rebel and reject his worthiness in worshiping him. That sounds like Jesus to me. So if you want to show biblical love, it it does not require reciprocation. Now, I'm not saying that this means you just sit down and shut up in marriage and never express your feelings and say, hey, listen, I feel like I'm pulling all the weight here. I'm not saying that. There are times for those type of conversations in marriage. But what I'm saying is the best way to have those conversations, men, women, is to lead with self-sacrifice. Because most often people who have a heartbeat and a soul, when they see you pulling your weight and see you giving your half and see you loving well, they will eventually follow suit. That's the best way to lead. Here's the other truth. Love does not grow from the soil of duty. It grows from the soil of gratitude. Imagine if I sat next to Shelby on the couch tonight. I said, Shelby, I've come to a realization lately that it is my duty to love you. And so on this day, as your husband, because the Bible tells me I have to, I solemnly swear to take out the trash, help you around the house, because it's my duty. Now, I'm trying to think of how Shelby would respond to that, but it wouldn't be good, right? That's not love. Love isn't I have to. Love is I want to. And that's not just true in marriage, right? Loving other people in the church, loving Uh, the lost, loving your enemies. It's not I have to, it's I want to. And the Bible tells us where we fill up the well of love in our souls. We fill up our well by reflecting on Christ's love for us. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. You don't even get the credit for loving Jesus. You don't even get the credit. Because the only reason you love him, whether you realize it or not, is because he loved you first. So love, which starts with God and then extends to others, is not even we're drawing out of our own resources, which is actually a great encouragement. If you don't think you're a loving person, uh, number one, you're wrong. God created you to love. He made you in his image. And if God is love, you can be a loving person too. But you don't fill that resource of love by your own effort and your own like, you know, mustering up your love muscles. No, you love out of an overflow of Christ's love for you. 
That's why if you're in a loveless marriage or in a marriage that's in a love drought, listen very closely, or in a relationship that's in a love drought, you can love really well even when they are terrible at loving you. Because what the Bible says is we don't draw our strength from love from them. We draw our strength to love from him. So I love him because he first loved me. And John says in other places that I love others because I love him. Because if I don't love others, then I haven't truly loved him. So all of the love I will ever express in my life is simply by me going to the well of Christ's love for me. Out of gratitude for his love for me. Therefore, John says in the next verse, that those who say they love God but hate their brother, John says, are liars. Here's what he's recognizing. That it, you cannot be at the well of Christ's love for you and then go out and not share it. Say, if you hate them, no, you're a liar. You don't love God at all. Because those are his people. Your spouse is one of his people. If you love him, you're going to love her. You're going to love him. Even with all of his many imperfections, you'll love him. Right? And so what is love? Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that is not based on their merit and, not, and does not require reciprocation. So you can go out and love your spouse really, really well this week. And you can even be happy doing it. Even when they're not following suit. Because you have a savior who has an infinite well of love for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you've shown to us through your son's cross. We pray, God, that that love would fill our hearts. Not just with love for our spouse, but for other people. Lord, I pray you'd fill us even this morning with a love for those who may walk through our doors today. I pray, God, that that love would show itself in hospitality and warmth to those who are uh, new people in our church or those who may uh, have come a thousand times, but maybe we haven't checked up on them. We haven't introduced ourselves. We haven't talked to them in a while. I pray that love would be evident in the service this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.